Luke chapter 13, five verses this morning. It reads, at that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, talking about to Jesus, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come today, help us to hear, help us to see, and help us to receive your word today. We pray that we would leave here today changed for eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The microscope is king. Those are the words that we heard come from the doctor at Moffitt this week. As they laid before Jennifer her options of treatment. By the way, I asked her permission to share this. She said I could. That's not why she's not here today. Okay. I knew I'd get emails, so just want to head them off. He said the microscope is king. As we asked, where are we? Where are we heading? He was honest with us to say, look, in my world, as we slice and dice and put things underneath the microscope, whatever the microscope says is what reality is. That's objective reality, and that the microscope is king means it determines what we will ultimately do with you, for you, to you. We're encouraged. We're encouraged to know that there's an objective reality. We're encouraged to know that there's a boss, that there is an authority in this situation that we're facing as a couple. What about you? What has the ultimate authority in your life? Who has the ultimate authority in your life? If In a few hours, if they're not already there, my father-in-law will think that he's the ultimate authority in my life. <laughs> From how I collect trash and dispose of it to how I keep the lawn or the lack thereof. But it's not your... In-laws, it could be your parents that you say, well, in some ways they are a, a great ultimate authority in my life. For some of you, if you were to be honest with yourself, with one another, you might be able to say, you know what, actually, I live as if the children that we've birthed, uh, they seem to be the ultimate authority in our life. Some of you might say the bank or your boss feels like the ultimate authority in your life. Why do I bring up this issue of authority and the ultimate authority? 
Because what's front and center in this passage is the kingship of Jesus Christ. Also what's front and center in this passage is not only the kingship of Jesus Christ, but how folks are responding to the kingship of Christ in the first century. How do you respond to Jesus as king? Because whether you like it or not, the reality is that Jesus is the ultimate authority in your life. Whether you live like it or not. The scriptures are clear that Jesus is the king of all kings. That he's the lord of all lords. And so the question before you today and before me today is how do we respond? How do we respond to the kingship of Jesus Christ? I was grateful for that doctor this week because in reality, this word of God is the microscope in our lives. It's, this book contains the words of the King of Kings. And so every Sunday when we come here, it's as if we are putting our hearts before the microscope of God's word. And we're begging Jesus is King to examine our hearts to examine our lives and compare contrast who we are with who he would have us to be. And where we are with him versus where we should be in our relationship to him. And so my question before you today is this. How are you responding to Jesus' kingship? As you read this passage today, you might think, it's hard to see how this passage would apply to me today because it seems like it's an argument between Pharisees and Jesus or those that used to live in Jerusalem and now dead and gone in Jesus. And so I want us to unpack this passage today by asking three questions that I believe help apply this passage to our lives. These three questions help us see how we are responding to Jesus' kingship in our lives. And the first question is related to verse 31, and it's this. Are you angry? Is that how you respond to Jesus' kingship and authority? Are you just angry with him? That's what it says about Herod Herod here in verse 31. It says, at that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, Talking to Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, scholars debate about whether or not the Pharisees are really trying to trick Jesus right here, or whether or not they're genuinely looking out for Jesus. What we need to be reminded of is the fact that theologically and biblically, the Pharisees were most aligned with Jesus versus all the other Jews in that day. Do you know why? The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. And you're going to see how the resurrection is very significant and important already in this passage. Although scholars debate about whether or not the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus here to get him down to Herod so Herod can kill him, or whether or not they're genuinely looking out for him doesn't matter in its application to us today. Because what we see here is how Herod of Antipas responds to Jesus. What does it say? He's angry. In other words, every time Herod heard about Jesus healing someone, curing someone, in Herod's mind, he got angry and said, that Jesus, you 
must die. You must die. Have you ever met somebody like that who just hates God? Have you ever met someone like that who just hates Jesus Christ? That the very sound of his name just seems to cause the water of their soul to boil? Or have you ever been there yourself? That in the face of God's sovereignty in your life, you've gotten angry with him because you don't like what he's doing. The reason Herod is so angry at Jesus is that Jesus is proving with every miracle that he performs that he is the messianic king. That he is the king of the Jews. And do you know what title Herod liked to wear? The king of the Jews. In other words, the reason that Herod's angry at Jesus is that Herod looks at Jesus and he says, This kingdom is big enough for only one king, Jesus, and that king is me, not you. Have you ever been there? Some of you are there today. You know God's sovereign, but you don't like what he's up to. And you're responding to his sovereignty with anger. I want to thank you for how you have loved and cared for me and Jennifer already through her diagnosis and as we face her treatment. I want to be honest with you that that we are praying and processing options and we are cycling through the stages of grief. And on Thursday as we were driving back, we were cycling through the stages of grief. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I got angry with God. As I rehashed in my mind numerous questions that Jennifer was asked that they thought if she had indulged in this kind of habitual lifestyle, it would have caused the diagnosis that she has, and she hadn't done any of them. And in my sinful arrogance, I began getting angry with God and say, God, why? Why my wife? Why her? I mean, she was a good Church of God girl, man. She didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with those who do. Until she started dating me. Right? We can be honest here, right? And and I began getting angry with God as we're driving down I-4. And it was when we came up upon an overpass that took us up into the air. And there were guardrails, not just guardrails, but there were concrete barriers on the side that I had to preach to myself. That so many times I have talked about the significance and the importance of systematic theology and understanding sound biblical doctrine. Because in times of our lives when emotions get the best of us and our mind does tricks on us, we need the sound biblical doctrines of the word of God to keep us in line so that we don't jump the guardrails of sound theology, like we're on a four-wheeler and just go wild in our rebellion and our anger against God. So as I was driving down I-4, I had to be reminded of the fact 
that God is, God is the creator. That he knit me and my wife both together in our mother's womb. Not the same, Mom. Just wanted you to know, even though we're from West Virginia. Then I needed to be reminded of the fact that of, of, the, of the doctrine of the fall. The, why is my wife wrestling with this diagnosis? Because we live in a fallen world. I'm glad Chris isn't here because I'll probably get this wrong and then he can correct me later. But for right now, it'll preach. So I'm going to say this. Uh, so as the doctor was explaining to me what happens with cancer, they drew a little diagram there. And then they talked about, okay, this is what, this is what cells normally do. And we don't know why, but cells tend to want to do sometimes more than what they should be doing. And so they keep on overworking. And they looked at me and they said, what? Jennifer asked, well, why, why, why did mine do that? And they said, we don't know. They're like, we need to do more research. I'm like, no, you don't. The doctrine of the fall explains it. That woven even in the fabric of creation, even in the cellular structure of our bodies, is a desire for autonomy, to self-rule, to self-govern, to go against the creator of the universe. And it was in that moment that my anger subsided. Because as the broken line led me home to Bartow, I was reminded of the fact that through this difficult season of our life, it will be our suffering Savior, Jesus Christ, who was broken and crushed for us, that will walk with us and guide us wherever his sovereign path will lead us. So how are you responding to God's sovereignty today? How are you responding to Jesus' kingship? Are you angry? If you're angry, take it to him in prayer. You won't be the first, you won't be the last. Read the Psalms. It'll scare you to death. But know this. The Romans 8.28 says this. It assures us of this. That we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How are you responding to Christ's kingship? Are you angry? Or are you amazed? That's the second question I want to ask related to how you're responding to Christ's kingship this morning. Is Are you amazed? That's really how Herod should have been responding to Jesus' kingship. In verses 32 through 33. By the way, I love this, this passage. I love this, this verse. This is what Jesus says in response to the Pharisees. He says, go and tell that fox. Which, by the way is an insult. It's trash talk. I love this. I can't get enough of this. Now, I know some of us that live on this side of the Jimi Hendrix experience, when you think of the word fox, you think of the, the song Foxy Lady, the diminished chords, and you think, well, this is just a little cute kind of flirtatious thing about an attractive woman. That, that's not what Jesus means here. It's an insult about how he's wily and he's malicious and he's weak. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, go tell that little fox that I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day until I finish my course. I love this because you know what? When I grew up in, in church, oftentimes I got pictures of Jesus that he was in like this white dress and he looked all sissified. 
Jesus is not a sissy. Read this passage. Jesus, in a sense, is trash-talking Herod, similar to the way King David trash-talked Goliath. (laughs) Oh, you think you're something, Goliath? You're nothing but an uncircumcised Philistine. Frankly, I think you're overrated. Here, what is Jesus saying? There is the battle of the kings, and they're trash-talking. Herod, who thinks he's the king of Jews, is coming up against Jesus, and Jesus is the king of the kings and the lord of lords, and he is the king of the Jews. And he's saying, you know what? Tell him that I'm proving my kingship with every demon that I expel, for every person that I heal, and tell him, oh, by the way, I'm going to do it today, I'm going to do it tomorrow, and I'm going to do it the next day. Until I finish my course. And I have no doubt that the reason that Jesus talked about today, tomorrow, and the next day was to signify the fact that he would be dead three days and on the third day he would resurrect from the dead. In other words, Herod, stick around because you're going to live long enough to see me die and resurrect, which by the way, which was Herod's fear about Jesus anyway. Herod was afraid that Jesus was John the Baptist somehow resurrected from the dead. What is Jesus saying? Herod, in the face of my kingship, you shouldn't be angry. You should be amazed. You should be amazed. Further, what should amaze them is what Jesus highlights in verse 33, that everything's going to happen in Jesus' life according to the Heavenly Father's timetable, not the fox's timetable. Everything's going to happen according to the Heavenly Father's plan, not the fox's plan of Herod. Look at what he says in verse 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem's been significant in Luke's gospel already. If you flip back to Luke uh, chapter 9, in fact, flip there with me. It's an open book test. You'll see I'm not making this up. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, as Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, it says this in verse 31, Actually, let's start verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, this is being divinely revealed. That it's all part of God's plan. Then flip over to chapter 9, verse 51. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 53. But, but people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. What's the point? In response to Jesus' kingship, Herod and God and the people should have been amazed. Because everything was happening according to God's timetable and God's plan. We're heading into this season where we love little baby Jesus, and he's so cute, and he's so tender, and he's so soft, and he's so gentle, and there's the beautiful hymns. But don't forget about the cross and the empty tomb as we're reminded of the cradle. And that every day of his life and every step of his day and every, every step that he took towards Jerusalem, the cross and the agony and the pain was before him. 
I love the story about Stonewall Jackson and how he got his nickname. It was the Battle of Bull in Virginia. And General Bernard B. said, There is Jackson standing like a stone wall. And the men around him were admired, admired his stubborn courage in the face of chaos. Church, does Jesus amaze you? He should. Because what we see in this passage is what Jesus says in John's gospel later on, that long before the foundation of the world, there was a covenant of redemption is what it's called. In other words, the triune God of the universe got together as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and discussed which part each person of the Trinity would play in accomplishing your salvation and saving you. And the Father said, I have a plan, Son, but this plan involves the fact that you must die. Are you willing? And in a sense, the Son said, I am. And that's why Philippians chapter 2 highlights the fact that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant, even obedient to death. May that never cease to amaze you. As we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. May it continuously amaze you, church. The authority that our Savior had, and yet he humbled himself. To the point of death on a cross. That's what Jesus says in John 10. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. What is Jesus highlighting there? The covenant of redemption. As the reformers highlighted. So beautifully. That the father had a plan. The son accomplished the plan. And the Holy Spirit applies that work of redemption to the heart of God's elect as he draws them with his effectual calling in their life. What's your response to the Christ's kingship? Are you amazed? Not only should you be amazed, but you should be accepting. That's the final question of application I have for you today. Is that when you respond to Christ's kingship, are you accepting? Look at how Jerusalem was not accepting of Jesus' kingship in verse 34. They had a very bad track record. Listen to Jesus' heart in verse 34 when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. In other words, you've got a track record, you've got a pattern. Listen to Jesus' compassion, though, with this metaphor. He says, How often when I've gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. In other words, you wouldn't accept. You rejected me. And your decision's final. And then he says in verse 35, Behold, Your house is forsaken. In other words, the temple is forsaken. God's presence has left it. Even though the presence of God is tabernacled in Jesus, they've rejected him. And then I learned something this week I never knew. 
Never really thought about. I guess that's why I read the commentaries, right? Always assumed that when it says, blessed, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I always looked at that as just simply referring to Jesus' triumphal entry in chapter 19. And that's true. But the point that Jesus is saying as well is that some of you that reject me, you won't see me again until the final day of judgment when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So how are you responding to Christ's kingship? Are you accepting? He's known as Dr. Terry Barrett, but Jennifer calls him Uncle Terry. Jennifer has an uncle who's a dermopathologist, and kind of his claim to fame is this, that years ago when President Reagan was in office, it was feared and believed that President Reagan may have skin cancer. And so Jennifer's uncle, Dr. Terry Barrett, was actually the dermopathologist that looked at President Reagan's slice of skin under the microscope and determined whether or not it was cancer. That's a great piece of Terry's life. I'll tell you what one of the most miserable pieces of Terry's life is, is going home to West Virginia for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Because anybody in Jennifer's family that has a mole or a spot on their skin, or even has sunburn, wants it to be addressed by Uncle Terry. And one time he was, Jennifer and I were talking about how we were going to be moving to Florida, and, and we were asking about SPF and all these things. And Terry said, well, have you ever seen the commercials that says, dermatologists recommend? And we said, yeah, absolutely. We were like, but we figured just Johnson & Johnson slipped them a 20. He kind of smiled. He said, no. He wasn't being arrogant, but he was just being honest when he said, you know, there's like an association of dermatologists that get together and actually discuss these things and vote on them. And Jeffrey said, yeah, but how do you not know that the guy that's leading it all is corrupt? Terry kind of, he did that eye flutter. You know people that do the eye flutter when they get angry? He said, well, maybe if you didn't know the person that was president of the dermatologist right now, maybe you could believe that. And Jeffrey said, what do you mean? He said, well, Kind of been the president of that association for, for, for a couple years now. <laughs> and he sarcastically looked at us and said, So when you see the commercial that says dermatologists recommend, just substitute Uncle Terry recommends. <laughs> and he said, So if you don't mind, I'm going to go back in the kitchen and I'm going to have a slice of Mama's cheesecake because I'm on vacation. How did that change everything, though? To know that there was a loving, familiar face behind that authority. Friends, that's the way I want you to leave here today as you respond to Christ's kingship. Knowing that you have a loving, compassionate Savior behind His rule and reign over your life. You know that he loves you because he died for you. And so it's not too much of him that look at you today and demand the same of you. 
that if you want to serve him, you too must die. That's why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But it's good to die for Jesus. Do you know why? Because he's a very, very good king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we take comfort today knowing that we're not saved because of who we are, but because of who you are. We take comfort today knowing that we're saved not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done for us through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He died so we might live forever. But to live with him with forever, we must daily die to ourselves. Help us to bend the knee of our hearts and our attitudes to King Jesus today. And Father, I pray if there even be some among us that are struggling to bend their knee to you. That spiritually speaking, you would break their kneecap if that's what it takes. Because better to hurt now than to hurt forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's turn our hymn.